Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. Today is Saturday, November 2nd, 2019. On this day in 1960, a jury ruled in a landmark case against Penguin Books in London. It changed the course of English obscenity law. The fight centered around one Lady Constance Chatterley and her torrid love affair with her groundskeeper. Welcome to Today in True Crime, a ParCast original. Every day we flip back the calendar to this date years ago and recount one event from true crime history. I'm Vanessa Richardson. Today we find ourselves rooting for the criminals for once as we follow the 1960 trial of Regina v. Penguin Books. The publisher had come under fire after attempting to sell copies of D.H. Lawrence's 1928 book, Lady Chatterley's Lover. It's a highly sexual novel, and the old-fashioned English legal system wanted to make sure it stayed out of readers' hands. Due to the erotic nature of today's topic, listener discretion is advised. Extreme caution is advised for listeners under 13. We open in the courtroom on the last day of the trial, Wednesday, November 2nd, 1960. Sir Alan Lane, the head of Penguin Books, anxiously awaited the verdict. Alan was sick of this room. The Central Criminal Court, or Old Bailey as everyone called it, was grand on the outside, underwhelming on the inside. For six days, he sat in the middle of a squat, sparsely decorated courtroom, watching old men in wigs make a fool of themselves. And it was as nerve-wracking as it was tedious. Though the case was against the company as a whole, and not him in particular, everyone knew he had made the push to sell the lady. Alan believed she deserved her day in the spotlight, and he had backed up that belief to the tune of spending 10,000 pounds on printing 200,000 copies. But this was par for the course. They published millions of books a year, and he would resign before he let the blighted parliament tell them what they could and couldn't do. That was all well and good. But now that he sat in the courtroom and saw the regime that he was up against, he realized he may have bitten off more than Penguin could collectively chew. For one, Justice Byrne, the stoic, satin-robed old crone, was blatantly favoring the prosecution. He cut in every once in a while with stupid little comments such as, if you take the adultery out, would there be anything left? And by and large, the jury wasn't much better. Looking at them now, towering over everyone in their box, he could see that they were almost all middle-class men who seemed like they were prepared to be just as scandalized as the judge. Thank God that Penguin Publishing's defense team had managed to at least get three women on the jury to join them. 
Allen thought they might be more ready to defend a novel about a woman's sexual experiences. If there was one bright spot, it was Mervyn Griffith Jones, the lead prosecutor. He was even more fierce a culture warrior than Justice Byrne. He seemed sincerely scandalized by the book, going so far as to read multiple passages aloud to the courtroom. In doing so, he made the prosecution seem like a bunch of -of out-of-touch prudes. Allen smiled in his seat as he fondly recalled Mervyn's speeches from days past. The big fool stood up from his table, beginning to slowly recite certain four-letter words from the lady. He said, quote, balls 13 times, arse six times, cock four times, adding that if D.H. Lawrence, the book's author, was any good at writing, then he wouldn't say things like womb and bowels. Mervyn paced in front of the jury, his robes and wig flailing, gesturing with the book in his hand. He shouted, Would you approve of your young sons, young daughters, because girls can read as well as boys, reading this book? Is it a book that you would wish your wife or your servants to read? That last line was the kicker. It really showed the middle-class jury what kind of a man they would have to side with if they agreed with the prosecution. He was from a class, indeed a whole generation, who believed that it was news that girls could read and that it was a man's duty to keep his household from reading certain pieces of literature. Did most of these jurors even have servants? Did any of them even read regularly enough to be able to recommend or prohibit anything in their household? By contrast, Penguin's attorneys were sharp, down to earth, and knew how to treat these middle-class folk. Queen's counsel Gerald Gardner brought forth witness after expert witness. They were clergymen, professors, writers, businessmen, and more. Some of them even knew D.H. Lawrence when he was alive and could talk about what he intended when he wrote the book. Using plain English, they portrayed him as a thoughtful man who believed in marriage and love, but wrote Lady Chatterley's Lover to express how he felt modern society led to people suppressing real emotion. They lived their lives in fear and never pursued what they actually wanted out of their time on Earth. One witness, while being cross-examined, spoke softly into the microphone about how the book had been written on a, quote, holy basis. Mervyn, who was cross-examining, boomed out to the jury, a holy basis? Well, just let us turn to a page and pursue this a little further. He then proceeded to read from a particularly scandalous passage, quoting, yes, this was love, this ridiculous bouncing of the buttocks and the wilting of the poor, insignificant, moist little penis. This was the divine love. Mervyn then embarrassed himself further by saying, not very easy sometimes, not very easy, you know, to know what in fact he is driving at in that passage, revealing that he didn't know what anal sex was. Allen had been sure in that moment that his opponents were, in fact, idiots. And yet, as the week wore on, Allen grew increasingly nervous that the middle-class jury was slowly being swayed by these high-society morons, 
They were painting the defense's witnesses as intellectual snobs. Now, on the final day when the jury was supposed to deliberate, Mervyn and the justice were driving this angle home. Mervyn was now saying, Do not approach this matter in any priggish, high-minded, super-correct, mid-Victorian manner. The novel sets upon a pedestal promiscuous and adulterous intercourse. It commends, and indeed it sets out to commend, sensuality almost as a virtue. It encourages, and indeed even advocates, coarseness and vulgarity of thought and language. Alan swore inside. Damn, damn, damn. All those hours of witness testimony and the judge and the prosecution were going to sweep it all under the rug as high-minded vulgarity. Closing statements were finished, and now it was time for the jury to deliberate. Everyone went outside into the courthouse lobby to wait. It wouldn't be long. The state always won these cases. They always managed to persuade a jury to convict. Alan saw that now. 10,000 pounds down the drain, probably a fine, and who knew what else. His career might be over. He continued to swear in his thoughts, using all of Mervyn's four-letter words. But then lunch passed, and there was no jury. An hour came and went. No jury. Two hours. Nothing. Finally, three hours, and the jury was finished deliberating. Everyone was called back into the courtroom. Alan sat back down at his table prison. He didn't know what to think. He thought the prosecution had this in the bag. But three hours of deliberation, that was a long time. The jury filed in. Once they were seated, the justice asked them to render their verdict. The room fell silent. And then, not guilty. Alan couldn't believe it. He was rushed from the courtroom, back outside, into a throng of reporters. They wanted to know how he felt. Was he surprised by the verdict? He thought about it, then put on his best bad boy smile. You can never tell with cases like this, but I am a natural optimist, so I wasn't too surprised. Next, we'll explore the origins of the obscenity trial and what became of Lady Chatterley's lover once it was finally available to the public. Now, back to the story. The Penguin Books obscenity trial ended on a surprising note on November 2nd, 1960, with Lady Chatterley's lover declared not obscene, the door was opened for any literature of merit that happened to include adult content. Though the trial lasted just six days, the book's journey had begun long before that, when author D.H. Lawrence first published the novel in 1928. At that time, it was available only in Florence, Italy, and then Paris the next year. A censored version was available in England beginning in 1932, but given the fact that the unedited book contains 13 sex scenes, this was a severely truncated version of the story. But Lawrence was a passionate defender of his novel from the beginning, writing to his agent in August 1928, I am determined to stand by Lady C and send her out into the world as far as possible. 
He was no stranger to controversy. According to research done by the History Channel, he fled England in 1911 so that he could live in Germany with another man's wife. Then, in 1915, Lawrence's fourth novel, The Rainbow, was his first to be banned in England, as it dealt with sexual desire and portrayed it as normal and positive. Though he died in 1930 at the age of 44, his legacy endured, and he eventually became respected as one of England's finest writers. And yet there was still a persistent narrative pushed by the conservative upper class that Lawrence was a gifted writer who wasted his potential by writing smut. This is perhaps what drew Sir Alan to champion the novel. It was Penguin's 25th anniversary in 1960, and they had a long legacy of refusing to censor literature. This was at odds with the British government of the time, which adhered to such laws as the 1868 Hicklin Rule. This law gave prosecutors the broad power to ban any literature with a tendency to corrupt, meaning that regardless of intent, if the government felt that common folk would be led astray by the material, then it was obscene. Lady Chatterley was of the upper class and yet she lowered herself by having sex with a commoner. In addition, she was a woman asserting her own sexual desires. The traditionalists couldn't permit such a portrayal. As writer Leo Robson states, governments of his era believed strongly in the relationship between writing and advocacy, reading and action. The legal establishment in Britain in 1960 feared that Lady Chatterley would inspire a wave of free-thinking, sexually liberated women. Clearly, they needed the novel to be banned. It should have been an easy victory. 13 sex scenes and hundreds of expletives left the prosecution confident that they could prove Lady Chatterley's obscenity. According to Molly Panter Downs, who reported on the entire case for The New Yorker, on August 16, 1960, a detective from Scotland Yard arrived at Penguin to acquire a copy of the book, and a few days later, the company was charged. In a report from The Guardian, Attorney General Reginald Manningham Buller is quoted as having read the first four chapters and then telling the director of public prosecutions, I hope you get a conviction. Jurors were forced to read the lady the week before the trial, having to come into the courtroom to do so, as the obscene book could not be allowed out into the wild. Once the trial began, it came down to a ping-pong match between Mervyn Griffith Jones' proselytizing and the defense's 35 expert witnesses. But as Sir Alan thought, the wives and servants' comment from Mervyn cemented the prosecution's image as out-of-touch lords from an era gone by. The prosecution overplayed their hand as moral arbiters, and thus began the downfall of obscenity laws in the United Kingdom. As for Lady Chatterley's lover, the book sold all 200,000 copies within literal minutes. The trial having had the exact opposite effect than what was intended. Within three months, it had sold three million copies. It was a huge victory for the freedom of the written word, and perhaps the one time we're happy to see that the criminals got away scot-free.
Thanks for listening to Today in True Crime. I'm Vanessa Richardson. Today in True Crime is a ParCast original. You can find more episodes of Today in True Crime and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Today in True Crime, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Today in True Crime on Spotify, just open the app and type Today in True Crime in the search bar. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll be back with a brand new episode tomorrow in True Crime. Today in True Crime was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Russell Nash, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Paul Mahler, Maggie Admire, and Travis Clark. This episode of Today in True Crime was written by Greg Castro. I'm Vanessa Richardson. 